how are innovative modern CIOs managing the challenge of data? We're speaking with Lance Rawls, who is the Global Chief Information Officer at Belkin. I want to say a huge shout out to Nutanix for making CXO Talk possible. Tell us about Belkin and tell us about your role. Belkin International has been around for 36 years. Uh, we're a family of brands that include Belkin as a starting point, Linksys, Wemo, which is our home automation IoT, and a, a newer brand called Finn that is uh, going to revolutionize the world of water. We are part of Foxconn Interconnect Technology, who we merged with last year during an acquisition. The role of the CIO is changing dramatically. From your perspective, what's going on? How is that role evolving? Back in the 70s and 80s, we were talking mainframe, we were getting into all the, the nitty-gritties of the client server in the 90s. And so there was a lot of focus on just getting systems to work. Now it's not about getting systems to work, it's about allowing those systems and the data you have to really expand what your business is doing and allowing your business to innovate, create, and really be able to grow. And so the risk of not getting involved from a business perspective, what, what is that risk? We could become irrelevant if we're not involved in what's going on with the business and understanding what's there and what the needs are. The only way to keep relevancy and to be at the forefront is to really be hand in hand and lockstep with the business and what they're doing. How is it even possible for a modern CIO to not be lockstep with the business? We get caught a little too much in the day to day. Uh, there's always a fire, there's always something going on from a technology perspective. You can't speak just tech to the business. You have to say, I always say I'm a bilingual CIO, and I think not enough CIOs are bilingual, and we try to just talk tech, we try to talk tech jargon, and sometimes a business doesn't quite understand what we want. And then they don't want to invite you to the, biz to the business meeting because they're like, look, he's going to talk a bunch of Latin, I don't understand it, so we're just not going to have him here as part of the conversation. What's the underlying dynamic that drives that conversation to be not about business or using too much technology jargon? When I came in here, our team, every one of our goals on our team had what they call an SLA, service level agreement. If you ask the business what that is, they probably couldn't tell you what SLA stood for and they certainly didn't know what it means to them as a company. So as an example, I, we moved to an NPS score, which is Net Promoter Score, which our business uses to see how well we're doing with our external customers and consumers. And that's something they understand. So now we have an NPS score to our internal customers of how well we're doing. And that resonates with the business and they understand what that means. How did you come up with that concept? I mean, that's a pretty unusual way to think about IT. And really it came from how does our business operate and how can we start to modify things to operate in that? And so the NPS just came to me as this is something we need to do and we need to operate this way. It also changed the mindset of my, of my department because when I first got here, you could make an SLA and sometimes that would still not satisfy the customer because they're like, well, that should have taken an hour and it took three days and yes, you met your SLA, but it doesn't help me. Whereas there is other situations where they know something's gonna take five, six, seven days, it's complicated, and we come in and do it in four days. Well, we missed our SLA, 
but they're extremely happy and proud of, wow, we got this done a lot faster than I thought and I can go off and do my business. And so that shift in even mindset of my department focus on the customer experience versus some SLA nuance has really helped to shape better customer service to our internal stakeholders. So it sounds like you're thinking about IT as a, as what, a marketing function or a part of your job is marketing, is that? It is absolutely part of the job to market what we do, to make sure people don't think of us as just back office, but really providing solutions. And you hit it perfectly, Michael, in the sense that when I am, when I am thinking about what to do, I am thinking about our end customers and our end consumers but I have to focus on our internal employees because if I service them well, then they can service our end customers and consumers well. And so that is a focus of ours, is to make sure we're serving our internal stakeholders extremely well so that those external stakeholders and our customers are happy with their experience. So I'm hearing three different things. Number sure. one is the, the core activities that IT performs as a function. Yep. Number two, your relationship to your external stakeholders, external to IT, namely the people that, that primarily that work at Belkin. Yep. And then number three are your folks inside IT. That's exactly correct. You've got to be able to, to do the blocking and tackling, as they say in, in IT. You've got to make sure your systems are up, running, functioning the way they are. But once you have that, then you can really pull the playback playbook open and really start doing more and more with the business and, and tackle more value-add uh, opportunities with the business. Lance, elaborate on that. How does the product mix of Belkin and the timing of your releases affect IT? What is relevant for the systems we need to focus on to help get those products out and to be successful, to be out in the e-commerce space, to be in the retail space? How do we support the creative teams, the marketing teams, the sales teams, the finance teams, all of the pieces of the business, our product development teams, building the foundation that they work on top of to be able to exponentially increase their work is our goal so that we can get products out the door faster. So if we don't have good systems and processes in place, then those things take longer than they should. And in our world, being first to market is important and you wanna get that latest and greatest product out there. If you don't have that trust between the business and technology, what you end up with is a, is a system and a product that's not working for the business and is causing them to struggle and take longer to be able to build out our products and our, our opportunities. It sounds like a big part of what you do, or a very important part, is serving as a bridge or a translator almost between the intent rather than the words of the business. That is well reframed and exactly correct. Are there metrics that you use aside from NPS for measuring your success? We're always looking at places to put in better metrics uh, for what we do. Another example of a, a good metrics to track is first time to resolution. So I'm a big believer in it's okay to fail, you try not to constantly fail, of course, but you wanna learn from your failures and learn quickly. At the same time, 
we want to try to get it right most of the time. And so tracking that metrics of, you know, first time to resolution and it fixes the business issue is an important metrics. When we're looking at our systems, it's ensuring that we understand our uptime and what's going on in that area, understanding how much data is coming in and what we're doing there. All of those things we're tracking on how fast we can get things done. So the traditional metrics actually don't go, the traditional IT metrics don't go away, but you're layering on a whole new set of important goals. Absolutely. You still need your IT metrics of your systems and what they're doing and how long they've been up, all that standard technical you know, jargon but you need to find those metrics that then fit the business and what we're doing and tackling and accomplishing. Let's shift gears here and talk about data. Okay. Data is increasingly important for every business. And to begin, what kinds of data are you managing and can you give us a sense of the volumes of data that you manage? From the data that we get in, some of the most valuable information that we pull into our systems and then are able to translate out into our sales and finance team is really what's happened at the point of sale. What is happening with our customers or the retailers, where that information is coming in and then understanding where things are going. We're making decisions on that data of what's working, what's not working, and it is a fluid situation. And in this business, as I'd mentioned, um, our, our CEO and founder, 36 years of doing this business, is always talking about how you have to be quick to adapt and you got to be able to get in there, get your hands dirty and, and see what's going on. So that data is, is brought in and we feed that out and it's important for then our analysts and our financial teams that they're presenting that to the business, that they can feel that the numbers are accurate, that it's been correct from our world into their world and be able to make real decisions on the business. If we're not doing that, then the business could make decisions that are, are based on false data and really could uh, cause bigger issues down the road. So the data is coming in from retailers, from your e-commerce site, and what do you do with it? We've got data coming in from the very beginning of a product, the inventory, the whole supply chain and logistics of you know, what's going on out there, where things are, our supply and demand planning, all of those things are pulling this data in and using some of, it's using other pieces of the data. The data from the retailers is dictating what we're doing in, in supply and demand planning, as an example. And so that information, when it comes in, we have a team that has to get that data into the proper format because every retailer doesn't necessarily put it in the same way. And there is some massaging we have to do. We try to automate as much as possible to reduce human error, but you do have to massage that data and make sure it's in a format that then can be used by, by the like, finance teams and the business and sales teams to use that. I know you're working with Nutanix. Yes. What are you doing with Nutanix? So Nutanix has been a great partner for us. We have, in this last year, we have went to build our own private cloud. And so, you know, there is a benefit of a public cloud, uh, having things on premise, and then now a private cloud. And so with Nutanix, they've really given us the ability to uh, build our own private cloud to be more scalable, to be able to take in more data as needed, more or less, so we can really scale up and down with Nutanix. It's a really easy system that allows 
our business, if we need to spin something up, just like you would in the cloud, it allows us to do that in our personal cloud. And there's real benefits to being in your personal cloud versus your private, versus a private cloud. You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, private cloud, public cloud, hybrid cloud. And it's, it's almost a religious battle at times. It is an interesting conversation because I will hear certain things that make me cringe a little bit. I've been in situations a few years back where someone will say, no, 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 we don't want to go to the cloud at all. It's, it's, it's not secure, it's too scary. And really those are, those are bad ways to look at it on both fronts. I think you have to look at each situation and there's absolutely valid reasons to go and be on-premise, to be in the public cloud, and to be in the private cloud. And so if, in my mind, if you're not doing a little of everything, it gets a little complicated. Maybe less and less of the on-prem as you go more into your private cloud. But eventually, we will always have a private and a public cloud offering here to our business. And the, one of the reasons and the benefits of that is you can, and it can go both ways. Sometimes they just need to test something quickly and so we can give them something on our Nutanix systems and in the private cloud and they're off and running. Sometimes they wanna go into the public cloud because that's where the focus is gonna be. We're either building products that are gonna be out in the public cloud, whatever the case may be. And we are constantly evaluating if that is in fact in the right place. So when we go into production, with what we're doing in the business, we may find, ooh, this would be better in a private cloud versus a public cloud or vice versa. So we're always looking to go back and forth between those two offerings. So how do you make the decision about what to do? That's interesting with private cloud because you are in your data centers still, or in a data center, I should say. We don't have our own data centers anymore. So we're out in a, in a third-party data center. So yes, I could see someone saying, yeah, private cloud is, is a really private cloud. But, but I have to say, but it, okay, but if it's not in your data center, then it's in somebody's cloud. Correct. So the whole thing becomes like absolutely confusing anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know the whole cloud thing is still makes me laugh when you see little comics and you know, CEOs talking about this cloud that this white puffy thing up in the top and how does that tie to my business? And so, yeah, for us, having the ability to have the virtualization and we virtualize our data, we virtualize our systems, everything's virtualized to speed up what we deal with and to reduce our footprint as well. So when you virtualize your data and your systems, you're reducing your needs and, and footprint and thus costs to do that. And so when we're looking at it, uh, you asked what is, you know, what are the, some of the things we look at? It really comes down to cost, scalability, reliability, and what's truly needed from the business from a velocity standpoint. And so we help the velocity of business and what we're doing based on those decisions. And there's no one right answer. I can't sit here and tell you, yep, in these 10 examples go public and in these 10 examples go private. It, you really have to look at each situation and decide, yep, that is the, the, this is the reason we're gonna go and we're gonna give up maybe some costs, but it's gonna be more scalable and reliable and we're just not sure where the business is gonna be. And then you have other times where it's like, okay, this is pretty stable. We feel like it can be and sit in this environment at a relatively good cost and good reliability. And so we're comfortable with where that's at. 
Can you summarize the, th this equation? There's so many components, but can you give us directionally thoughts or advice on on how to assemble this equation? Yeah, just like any equation, uh, you have to understand how many variables you have, and, and hopefully you have uh, all but one of the variables so you can solve the equation. Sometimes you don't. And so what you have to do is, at times, do your best work and a bit of best guess on here's the six or seven variables, and examples again would be you know, cost, understanding the business, are we gonna be, you know, you've got these big companies out that, here now that start from nothing and all of a sudden blow up into the unicorn and overnight success. So they had to anticipate that or they wouldn't get there. And so you have to have a little bit of a crystal ball. You gotta understand where you're going from a cost and reliability standpoint, again, understanding the business and then you take your best guess today. Well, one very important question is the data. How do you decide where to put your data? We obviously have sensitive data in the world of privacy, privacy policy really coming up. California's got one coming. There's more than 15 states out there looking for their own privacy policy. With GDPR out in the European Union, all of those areas have made us be sensitive, not only where we keep the data, but how we secure the data. And you have to secure the data, not just from external folks, but from internal folks as well. There are certain situations where we can have certain people inside of our company, inside of Foxconn Interconnect Technology and Belkin International that can see certain data. So we have to be very careful about that. Virtualizing the data allows us to mass the data and we keep that data in our private cloud, where it's very well managed here. Not saying the public cloud can't secure that data, but we're very sensitive to controlling that sensitive data and not having as much um, PII and, and data in, in the public cloud. Lance, we began this conversation with a discussion of the changing role of the CIO. As we finish up, what advice do you have for CIOs who are facing this prospect of either growth or even dropping into irrelevancy for the business? What advice do you have for folks? I like to say that my CIO title is not Chief Infrastructure Officer. Because if, if we do that, then we will go into irrelevancy because you can get a public cloud to do that. And if you're not adding value to the business, then that's what you are as a chief infrastructure officer. And so I really focus my team on what was a CIO to start? That was to be a chief information officer. You're, you are to manage and be responsible for the information that your business is using and relying on to make decisions and quite Frankly, as I'd mentioned earlier, if you're not having a good conversation with your marketing team and understanding how the creative mind works and how they're looking at things, and you're not having a good business conversation with your sales team, your finance team, your product team, then you're not allowing those teams to do what they do best. My biggest advice there is the only way to get in the conversation is to start speaking their language. And a creative person and a finance person and a business person and a product development person are all gonna talk a different language. And so whether you're talking to an engineer, a creative, a marketer, a salesperson, a finance, you gotta be able to find a way to weave your technology conversation and message 
into their language to have a real genuine conversation. And what that leads to when you do that and you try to work in that operation is that you build trust with them. And then your team trusts you internally because you're speaking to them, you're speaking to the business, they're hearing the message from the business. Communication into my IT department is extremely valuable. They often will say that we didn't know that was going on. We didn't understand why we were doing this. And by providing that information, both to my internal team and to the business, it allows us all to be on the same page and drive forward in this day of innovation. So successful IT, therefore, actually is about successful communication. That is well stated. If you're not communicating, you mentioned it earlier, if you're not marketing, you're not branding what IT is doing, then you're not going to be successful. You're going to be a chief infrastructure officer and you're going to be irrelevant in uh, in very short time. Lance Rawls, Global Chief Information Officer of Belkin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it.